You're back, Ange. Do you want to give yourself another introduction this time? Another intro. I'll try not sound so Australian this time. <laughs> I'm Ange Crean and I'm a postdoc at UNSW. That's right, we're back with Ange Crean and in this episode of Dissecting Love, we're talking about her brand new discovery that's scaring the bejesus out of people all over the internet. The idea is called telegony. And telegony is about whether your past sexual partners could haunt you in a very unwelcome way. Now, our past sexual partners tend to leave a lasting impression whether we like it or not. And sometimes it's a good one and sometimes it's a bad one. But telegony is the idea that your previous sexual partners could leave a lasting impression on your offspring. But first, do you remember this? Well, our main area of research is non-genetic inheritance, which is fairly new field of research and quite controversial because we've always just assumed that the only thing we get from our parents is their genes. Um, it makes a lot of sense that our mothers can give us more than that. You can see if you're pregnant and you drink a lot of martinis and smoke, then that's probably not good for your baby. The thing that I'm most interested in is if the dad drinks a lot of martinis and smokes, whether that has any influence on the baby as well. So Ange is interested in finding out how males pass on information about their environment to their offspring. Because of course it's nice to have a heads up about what you're going to face when you enter the world. But that information can't be passed on through genetics because it has to be able to change with the environment. So there are a bunch of different ways that males and females can pass on information about the environment to their offspring through non-genetic mechanisms. Anne started looking at this stuff back when she was doing her PhD and then she used to work on sea squirts. I originally worked with sea squirts. They're these blobs that live on a rock and they squirt their eggs and sperm out into the ocean and I found that the sea squirts actually change their sperm to suit the environment that they're in. So if they're in a more competitive environment, if there's lots of sea squirts around, then they'll make more competitive sperm. Now that was surprising enough, but I thought, well, if it changes, does that change the offspring? And we found that the offspring of the dads that had been in a more competitive environment actually survived better in a more competitive environment. And vice versa. So. Offspring from dads that have been kept in isolation survive better when they were also kept in isolation. So it's like they're pre-programming their young to do better in the environment that they're predicted to be in. But how is it that a parent can pass on information to their offspring about their environment without genetics? The idea just sounds wrong. Some of you might have learnt about Lamarckism in school, Lamarck was the guy who proposed that if a giraffe stretched and stretched its neck, then it could then pass its stretched neck onto its offspring. Now, when we started to learn more and more about genetics, this idea was chucked out because it became clear that you couldn't pass on traits to your offspring that were acquired during your lifetime because those traits wouldn't be able to make it into the genetic code. And yet, Anger's sea squirts and lots of other animals do pass on information about their environment to their offspring. So how does that information get carried across? One really popular area of study at the moment is epigenetics. Epigenetics refers to stuff that's stuck to the outside of your DNA. 
Now we know that our DNA is a genetic code. It's like a recipe that our body follows that tells it what to do. And each part of our DNA needs to be read before it can be expressed, before the body knows what to do with it. Now the epigenome refers to clumps of chemicals that stick to the outside of the DNA and they affect the way it's packaged. The epigenome can hide sections of DNA away so that that DNA can't be read and can't be expressed. What that means is that the epigenome is like a filter that controls which parts of the DNA each cell expresses. Yeah, it's basically how genes are switched on and off. We develop from a single cell. And the epigenome is how that cell differentiates to make skin cells versus neurons and all these different cells in your body. So you don't really want that information carried on to your sperm or eggs because they need a clean slate to start. Importantly, changes in your environment can't really change your DNA, but they can change your epigenome. So people started to think that maybe the epigenome is what's carrying some of this environmental information over generations. There's only one problem. Since all offspring start from a single cell and need to be able to turn into all the different types of cells, every offspring's epigenome gets wiped when it's an embryo. And so it was thought that these environmental effects shouldn't get passed on because all those epigenetic marks get erased um, while the germ cells are forming. And then there's a second round where they're all erased again um, early on in the fetal development. So, I mean, we assumed that none of these epigenetic marks would get passed on. But now more and more cases, they're showing that some of them do manage to make it through. And so the idea is because this epigenetic layer can be influenced by the environment, that change in epigenome can get passed on to the offspring which is how the father's environment ends up transferring through and influencing the offspring traits. In humans, they have good data to show that what a male eats can influence both his children and their grandchildren. They've got effects of smoking. Um, so especially if males started smoking when they were quite young in that prepubescent time, if they were smoking then, then that has health consequences on the offspring. And beetle nut chewing, they found effects of that. And most of the ones that have been shown seem to be with um, metabolic dysfunction. So they find health effects of diabetes and, and obesity as most of the examples so far. It really surprised me that these epigenetic effects tend to influence our metabolic pathways because metabolic pathways refer to the way our body is producing energy. It seems pretty risky to be messing with the way that your offspring are going to be producing their energy. That's a really important process. But Ange explained that maybe it might be a really valuable thing. You know, that might be a sensible thing to be able to pass information to your offspring. If you're in a famine and you can preset your offspring to use their resources more efficiently, that's a good thing. The only problem is, is now if you're you know, metabolism is set to be really efficient and then we overeat, then we see problems of obesity. So now Ange studies these cool little flies and they're really special because they're highly plastic and what that means is that their bodies can change a lot in response to their environment, which lets Ange do some really cool experiments with them. 
and this plasticity is especially strong in males. When you raise males eating good food, they become really big. And when you raise them eating crap food, then they become really small. And this system is very predictable. What's really cool is that this size effect is passed on to their offspring. And Ange was conducting some experiments recently trying to figure out how this effect was passed on. And that's when she stumbled across something really strange. We were trying to figure out whether these paternal effects that we'd found in the flies were carried in the sperm itself, so an epigenetic effect, or if it was something else in the semen like we discussed in the other episode. So we mated the females to a big or small male while she was still immature, thinking that the eggs while she's immature are more likely to absorb any chemicals or molecules in the semen. And with flies, the eggs aren't fertilised until they're actually laid. So we left her um, for two weeks, so her eggs are maturing while being exposed to this first male's semen. And then we remated her to a second male. Now the second male's sperm is a lot fresher, it should have outcompeted the first male's sperm, let her lay eggs, and then collected those offspring. And... We were sort of expecting to see an effect of the second male and thought it might be an epigenetic effect, but to our surprise, the offspring size was completely determined by that first male that the female mated with. So if the first male was little, even if the second male she mated to was really big, the offspring still came out little. He wasn't able to counteract that effect. And if the first male was large, even if the father was little, the offspring still came out large. The flies definitely store sperm. We did have some of the offspring that were um, fathered by the first male, so about 15% of the offspring in the ones we did genetic testing of. It was actually the first male that his sperm survived all that time and managed to fertilise the eggs. Um, but even when we analysed just the offspring that we knew were the genetic progeny of the second male, their size was still set by the other male that the female mated with. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. I'm just going to give that a moment to sink in. What Anne is describing is that the female's offspring resembled the first male she had sex with, but not their father. Her kids looked like her ex. Now you get why people are so freaked out about this. So we did a bit of digging around and um, Russell Bondriansky actually found these papers talking about telegony. If you start digging for it, it was really popular and it was one of the things that was something that needed to be explained in any theory of inheritance. They were all referring back to this case of Lord Morton's mare. <laughs> now, this is a bit of a folk tale, um, but as the story goes... Lord Morton had a purebred um, female horse and he'd mated her to a quagga, which is like a zebra, but it's now extinct. And she produced hybrid foals and they were a mix between the horse and the quagga. And then he sold that female horse on to another breeder. And the other breeder was just mating her with purebred stallions, but all her offspring ended up having these stripes and a stiff mane, just like the quagga. He rode into the Royal Society, and this was the case that everyone had to try and explain in any theory of inheritance why a previous mating partner would leave an imprint on the female. 
Wow. Pretty cool. That's amazing. <laughs> so a lot of people have looked for this um, and done a lot of experiments and, and not been able to repeat it. So it's been written off. Um, and, yeah, ours is the first time that in an experiment we've actually shown it's a subtle difference. So um, the first thing that's different in our study is that flies aren't pregnant as such. So in a mammal, the effect could be from the semen of the male or it could be something that the developing fetus imprints on the female. Um, with ours, there's no pregnancy effect. Yeah, and it's, it's a non-genetic effect. We know it's this acquired characteristic because we've manipulated the size of the male flies by feeding them different diets. So a few subtle differences, but the effect we saw seemed to fit the exact definition mm. of what people were talking about 200 years ago. Rumour has it that telegony wasn't completely thrown out 200 years ago. Some people who breed animals still hold on to principles of telegony. You know, in, in horse breeding circles or dog breeding, if you want a purebred, um, you're... Your female can't be tainted by mating with anyone else <laughs> um, to keep her actual purebred status. So, I mean, it's it's old folklore, and with genetics, everyone said, oh, that's ridiculous, and it, I think it might have just been carried on as a tradition thing, but um, who knows? Maybe they were right all along. So now that we've seen this strange phenomenon, why would telegony have evolved? What's the advantage for one male in being able to influence the offspring of future males if those offspring aren't carrying on your genes? I can't think of any reason why it would be adaptive for a male to pass his traits on to somebody else's offspring. So it seems to make more sense if it's adaptive for him to pass that on to his own offspring and this filtering on to the next offspring is just a side effect of that. Um, I can see how it could be adaptive for the female if she changes her mating strategy. And, you know, one of the things we've suggested is it seems really odd that immature females would be choosy about who they mate with. Sometimes you see they're really resistant to mating at all. Um, in some species that makes sense if the females are harmed during mating, but like with our flies, it doesn't seem to really influence the females much it's a 45 second mating they keep on eating half the time <laughs> and so you sort of think well if she's not going to get pregnant from it um and she's not really getting harmed by it why would she care and this gives us some reason as to why the females might actually try and avoid mating with a lower quality male or she could actually change her mating strategies like you were saying in the other time of the month. It marries up with this idea of you mate for direct benefits when you're not likely to be fertile and then mate for genetic benefits when you're in that fertile window. I think it's finally time to ask Ange the question we've all been thinking. Do I need to worry about my previous sexual partners? Do I need to start rifling through my mum's drawers to find pictures of her old boyfriends? How likely is it that we would see telegony in animals other than flies? Look, there's no reason why it couldn't happen in any internal fertilisers. Um, maybe not in exactly the same way. The flies reproduct in 
system is quite different to ours. As I said, the, the egg doesn't get fertilised until it's laid. Um, but these kind of traits just made it easier for us to pick it up in this species. I think it's definitely possible that, yeah, it happens in a lot of species, but whether we can actually detect it or not is a whole other question. And with that unsettling thought, I'm going to leave you for now. Thanks for listening to Dissecting Love. I'll see you next time. We're two strangers